Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 3, Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15, part of the call of Moses in Exodus 3, verse 1 through Exodus 4, verse 17. Beginning then with the first verse of Exodus 3. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb, also known as Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh? and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token or sign unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, When I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? 
what shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Amen. Beloved, the angel of the Lord has appeared to Moses at the burning bush on the holy mount. And there stands the son of Amram and Jochebed, sandals off and face hidden, because he is scared to look upon God. And it was at that place that he received his solemn commission. Exodus 3, verse 10. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And in response, Moses comes up with five questions or objections or refusals five times. Two of them are given in the second half of Exodus 3, and the remaining three in the first half of Exodus 4. This was Moses' first question or objection in verse 11. Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh? and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who am I? His objection was based upon the consideration of his own smallness and weakness. It was about himself. I'm not up to it. And this morning, our focus is on the second question or objection. Verse 13, the first part of our text Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? That is, Whom shall I say has sent me? So this time, the second objection is not about Moses himself, who he is. The second objection involves God, who he is. And then, in the second part of our text, verses 14 through 15, we have the Lord's amazing answer to Moses' question. God said unto Moses, I am that I am. Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. 
Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. We're going to consider our text, Exodus 3, 13 through 15, under the theme, Whom shall I say has sent me? The question Moses asked. And then we're going to consider first how God's answer helped Israel, then how the answer helped Moses, and finally, how the answer helps church office bearers today, and indeed, all Christians. Whom shall I say has sent me? How the answer helped Israel, Moses, and especially by way of application, how the answer helps church office bearers. Moses' second question or objection anticipates rightly a question or objection that the Jews will put to him when he presents himself at God's behest as the deliverer. Verse 13, when I come to the children of Israel and tell them that I've been called, I know what they're going to say. They're going to say to me, what is his name? And what am I going to say? This raises the question, what does Moses think that they will be looking for? What is his name? Moses doesn't reckon that they're going to ask him for a sort of password, an esoteric or secret code like that of the later Gnostics, for example. Moses thinks, rightly, that they would be looking for a richer and deeper revelation of God, for such is the meaning of the word name, especially in the Bible. What is his name? Tell me more about the God who sent you. And in all the extraordinary calls or direct calls that are recorded in Scripture, when God commissions someone to a special office, this one is unique. Manoah, the father of Samson, asked the angel of the Lord who appeared to him, What is thy name? Judges 13. But he wasn't looking for some sort of a code or password that he could pass on to other people. We're told, because he gives us the reason for his request, what is thy name, that when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor. So he's asking for the divine name, but not so much the way Moses is, for a deeper revelation. Another instance of such a miraculous call is that of the Apostle Paul on the Damascus road when the light from heaven shone round about him, and he asked, Who art thou, Lord? 
And he asked that question about the one revealing himself to him because he didn't understand whose was the voice from heaven that had said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he asks, Who art thou, Lord? And here we have Moses with this unique question. He's asking about the identity of the one who has spoken to him from the burning bush, looking for this deeper, richer revelation. What is thy name? And the answer, I am that I am, had never before been given by God to any human being. And these words, I am that I am, are rightly famous in the church and even in parts of the world some three and a half millennia later as they were intended to be. Because at the end of verse 15, God says, after revealing Himself as the I Am, this is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. And yet this divine self-revelation is not altogether new. I am that I am. You should recognize that as a use of our English verb to be, occurring twice in the form am. And you will also readily understand that the divine name Jehovah, rendered in our authorized versions as Lord in capital letters, Jehovah used some 6,823 times in the Bible, as one man has counted it. Both are formed from the verb, of course, from the Hebrew verb, to be. I am that I am, the verb to be. Jehovah, from that same verb to be. And so it's not altogether new because the name Jehovah has been used in the Bible for centuries, way back to the very beginning, and long prior to Exodus chapter 3. And that name Jehovah was understood, known, used, spoken by the fathers prior to Moses. Here is its first use in Holy Scripture. Genesis 2 verse 4, reflecting upon the divine creation week. Quote, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord... Jehovah, the Lord God, made the earth and the heavens. And then when Eve gave birth to a son, Cain, her utterance was, Genesis 4 verse 1, I have gotten a man from the Lord, Jehovah. 
our first parents, Adam and Eve, knew the name Jehovah. And so did Noah, Abraham, Lot, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. And so I am that I am isn't entirely new. It's a deeper explanation of the already known, already well-known name Jehovah. Verse 14 of Exodus 3, God said to Moses, I am that I am, and I am hath sent me unto you. In verse 15, God continues, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord, Jehovah, the Lord God of your fathers, all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis, the Lord God of your fathers, who is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. Making it crystal clear that I am that I am equals Jehovah as a fuller, more expansive and explicit explanation of that name, who is God, who is the God who spoke to all the fathers prior, including the three great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this name of God, in a sense, is new to Moses and the children of Israel later when he speaks to them, I am that I am, but yet it's old, very old, as old as the creation in principle. It's the same as Jehovah, yet more deep and explicit. So we have continuity and development. Now, having said all that, why, why did Moses and now especially in the first point, Israel need to know God as the I am that I am at this point in redemptive history and not before. One factor is that the I am that I am stands over against the many gods and goddesses of Egypt. As to their number, some say that the Egyptians worshipped over 1,500 different deities. Another scholar reckoned that they served thousands upon thousands of gods. The Egyptians worshipped gods and goddesses of the sun, moon, and stars, the Nile was a god. The lakes around the Nile, they were gods or goddesses. The Mediterranean Sea, into which the Nile flowed, that was another deity. Fish and frogs who lived in and around these bodies of waters, they were gods too. Crocodiles and cobras, herons, vultures, lions, cats, rams, cows, you name it, they made a god out of it and worshipped it. Go and tell the children of Israel, I am, singular, I am, the one and only God has sent me to you. 
And in that God is I am that I am. He is unchangeable. I am that I am. Eternal, not I was or will be, but I am. Self-existent, not I came into being once upon a time I started to live, but I am. Faithful, I am just exactly what I am in everything that I say or do. I am means I am omnipotent, all-powerful. And I am that I am means I rule everything as the absolute sovereign. Go back and tell Israel, bombarded with all these Egyptian idols, I am that I am hath sent me unto you. And Israel needs to know I am that I am in the light of other things too. In Genesis 15, Abraham was told by the Almighty that God would remember His promise and after 400 years bring His people out of the bondage of, later history would reveal, Egypt. I am that I am, faithful, eternal. 400 years later, I am going to do it. This all-powerful I am that I am will defeat Pharaoh and his forces, and Israel must be sure of that, that that's the future, that he will deliver us from slavery and bring us up out of Egypt into the promised land, because the I am that I am, he is faithful and unchanging. And the church of all ages hears this word and understands the biblical ideas in their New Testament reality such that we confess it is that one who revealed himself at the burning bush as I am that I am who has liberated me from a far worse bondage and slavery, that of sin along with its punishment, even everlasting fire. I am is going to guide me just as much as Israel through the worst howling wilderness of this world. He is going to lift me as to my soul into paradise at death, and He will raise me bodily from the grave into the heavenly Canaan, the new creation, the land flowing with milk and honey in a far richer sense at the last day. And He needs to be everything that that name, I am that I am, says He is in order to do this. And when I doubt, I go back to His self-revelation. He's up to it. He will do it. Now, though Moses raised this second question or objection 
And as you move through these five questions, objections, and ultimately a refusal, you understand that they're not just simple inquiries for information. When Moses raises this second question regarding Israel, he needs it, that is the answer to it, he needs this for himself. Moses remembered only too well what happened the last time that he tried to deliver Israel. Over those 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness of Midian, he must have recalled time and time again the haunting words spoken to him in Exodus 2 by an Israelite, who made thee a prince or a judge over us? Who do you think you are in dealing with the Egyptians, and especially now the Egyptian that had beaten the slave, that you think you can bring us up out of Egypt? Moses, understandably, didn't want to be rejected a second time. And he wanted a really good answer to that question. And so Moses says, when I tell them that I'm the deliverer, they're going to ask, I know them, this is what they're going to say, what is his name? And I need a good answer. And so God says, I'll give you a good answer. You tell them, I am that I am. I am has sent me unto you. So who is the God then, looking at it from Moses' perspective, who is the God that is going to be with him? Verse 12, the answer to Moses' first objection, God said, Certainly I will be with thee. And in the second response, Moses is told, The I will be with thee is the I am that I am. Ah, I will be with thee. You must know, Moses, that you are going to be accompanied, even as you speak to these Israelites, you are going to be accompanied by the unchangeable and eternal one, the one who is all-powerful and faithful, the sovereign covenant-keeping God. You're going to speak to two million or more Israelites and tell them that you are called by a God who is self-existent, self-sufficient, and self-determining. And they're going to listen to you. Now, one thing, beloved, that we should notice when we read the Bible regarding the extraordinary direct call of office bearers into the kingdom of heaven is that they are all amazingly appropriate for this person in these circumstances at this time. Generally speaking, these calls have two purposes for the person who is called. First, they have a purpose at the time at which they are issued. The call explains the work that the person is going to do. And or the objections and difficulties they're going to have to overcome the doubts and fears they'll have to battle against. And second, these calls were given for their encouragement 
during their work. And so the calls were all highly relevant for what would come later. And this is very evident with regard to the call of Moses when you think of a few instances in Israel's history under the great Old Testament typical mediator. You'll recall when Israel was hedged in by Pharaoh's army before the Red Sea. This was the cry of the fearful church. Moses, were there no graves in Egypt that you had to take us out to die here before the Red Sea in the wilderness? Why did you do this crazy thing? We told you about this. We told you. Just leave us alone. It's better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses thinks to himself, according to the new man, God told me, I am that I am. And so Moses responds, just prior to the crossing of the Red Sea, Fear ye not. Stand still. You don't even have to do anything for your deliverance. And see the salvation of the Lord. Just see. Just watch. Be a spectator. I am that I am. Jehovah. He is going to save you this day. In verse 14, he continues, The Lord, which Moses and Israel now have been taught, means the I am that I am. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace or be quiet. Later, when Israel sinned with the golden calf at Mount Sinai, and that could have been, as it were, the end of the church, Moses goes up the Mount Sinai again to meet I am that I am, who says to him, Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord, the name of the I am that I am. And then he adds these highly significant words, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And this passage teaches us that just as I am that I am, the self-existence and majesty of Jehovah, this extends, as it were, to the truth of election with its corollary, reprobation. The I am that I am says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I am that I am, unchangeable, eternal, faithful, carries into and carries over to sovereign, unconditional election. I am that I am, and even in Israel, I'm going to choose amongst all this nation, with all its idolatry just evident, I'm going to choose my elect and save them. And one more instance 
This time Kadesh Barnea, when the fickle Israelites refused to enter the promised land from the south, and they wanted to go back to slavery, even saying in Genesis in Numbers 14, let's appoint a captain and let him lead us into Egypt. We don't want Moses to lead us into the promised land. We want another guy to lead us back south and west into slavery. I am that I am. What happened? The glory of the Lord, Jehovah, the I am, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. He just showed His majesty again, and the whole thing turned. Now, how does this self-revelation of Jehovah help Christians today, because it applies to all of us in different ways, and especially church office bearers. One very obvious, though from a certain perspective, maybe strange application of this, is that this Word of God is a clear, sound destruction of Unitarianism in all of its forms. Unitarianism is the denial of the crucial and heartwarming truth of the blessed Trinity. Think of the first three letters, uni. One, Unitarianism. There's one person in the Godhead. And therefore, say the Unitarians, our Lord Jesus Christ is not God. The blessed Holy Spirit is not God either. And Unitarianism is where many once faithful churches ended up at the long end of much apostasy. Unitarianism was popular, especially at certain times. In the fourth century, huge swathes of the church fell into it because it was promoted by the Roman state, the Roman Empire, including many of the emperors and even some of their wives. It was known as Arianism or semi-Arianism. In the 19th century, in America and Europe and other places, the more scholarly, intellectual, respectable form of unbelief led people to this Unitarianism, philosophy and science. God cannot be three in persons. In the 21st century, many churches and professing Christians are toying with Unitarianism because of the influence of Islam, which is emphatically, aggressively Unitarian. And it's all settled at the burning bush. Who was there at the burning bush? The angel of the Lord. An angel in English and in Greek, and the word that's rendered angel oftentimes in the Old Testament, technically it can refer to a created angel, 
divinely made messenger, but the basic idea is one who is sent. At the burning bush, then, we have one who is specially sent by God and who is called repeatedly in Exodus 3 and Exodus 4, the one sent by God, he is called God. He is called Jehovah. And who is one who is God and one who is also sent? Jesus Christ. He keeps calling himself, especially in John's, the gospel according to John, the one sent by the Father. And we have here, therefore, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Our text begins, Exodus 3, verse 13, Moses said unto God, and who's he talking to? The angel in the bush, the sent one. Moses said unto God. Verse 14 begins, And God said unto Moses, who is speaking? The one in the burning bush. God said unto Moses. And what did God, the one in the burning bush, say to Moses? I am that I am. Exodus 3. And you can easily see, because this is part of a call, the call of Moses, you can see how this applies to every church office bearer. And this is what every church office bearer needs to know. Whether a minister or an elder or a missionary or a professor or a deacon, when such people bring the Word of God not their own, of course, they know, and they need to know for themselves, I am called in due humility, but in truth, I'm called by God. Like Moses, I'm called by Jehovah. I am that I am. And our form for the ordination or installation of ministers has for the very first question asked of the brother, I ask thee, whether thou feelest in thy heart that thou art lawfully called of God's church, and therefore of God Himself, who is Jehovah, who is the I am that I am. There's no burning bush in a church building, so to speak, but you're still called by I am that I am. Do you believe that you are called by God Himself? You're not as great as Moses. You're never going to do half in the kingdom what he did. But like Moses, you're called by God Himself, I am that I am, to your own holy ministry. And that question is very similar to that found for elders, deacons, missionaries, and professors. And this, of course, is vital knowledge for the office bearer at the start when he begins his office, and vital knowledge all the way during his 
service in office, when he faces opposition, like Moses did, when there are hard times in the church and kingdom, like those that Moses experienced, and when he's severely tempted to be discouraged or even to resign, and Moses had those discouragements, I was called, I am called, notice the tense there, was called, am called, by one who calls himself, I am, that I am, self-existent, all-powerful, entirely faithful. And I need to be faithful and humble and serve. Let me read you a couple of verses from the Gospel according to John. Jesus says in John 8, verse 28, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man through the cross, His resurrection, His ascension into heaven, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He. He's in italics. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Or another example in John 18 at Christ's arrest, Jesus asks the 500 or so men come to arrest one person and they're armed to the teeth. Today people would protest armed brutality overkilled by the police. Whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Another sort of holy ground when Jesus was there. And they fell backwards. I am. This word, I am that I am, is a crucial word with regard to all of the modern, despicable, unbelieving views of the character of God. There is a movement called process theology. Process refers to a process. God is in flux. There's a process. He is changing. He is evolving. That's what is said regarding the Almighty. You say, I've heard that before. Man, we're told, evolved. Yeah. Now God evolves. Man comes out of the primeval swamp. Now God evolves too. Man changes. Lo and behold, they say God changes. Man reacts to circumstances. You know what? I want a God who reacts too. The future to us is open and unknown. We don't know what's coming, though God does. They say God doesn't know the future either, and He's excited. There are surprises for God out there, and He's looking forward to wonderful things that are going to happen in the future. And the greatest human figure in the Old Testament, and his writings are foundational to the Old Testament Scriptures, and indeed key in the New Testament too, Moses was told, 
at his call, this is my name. I am that I am. And anything short of that, like process theology, way short, is as much idolatry as what the Egyptians did way back then. This word, I am that I am, is the destruction too of Arminianism. And Arminianism brought process theology to birth. It teaches that God's election and decree, Christ's atonement, the Spirit's salvation, grace and perseverance all depend upon the free will of man. Man decides. And that one word, all by itself, rightly understood, that one word of God, I am that I am, the absolutely sovereign God, totally rules out all of that rotten theology. Let's take another form of Arminianism. The well-meant offer. God in heaven passionately desires to save each and every human being, and yet He fails with the vast majority of them. What was Moses told at his call? I am that I am, self-existent, eternal, unchangeable. I don't react to anything. I determine the future and the future of every human being. I'm God. And in our day, there are anthropomorphisms, that is, certain phrases or words ascribed to God from the human sphere that some people take literally and literalistically and foolishly so. You're familiar with statements in the Bible. Moses wrote this one by divine inspiration. He was the penman. God repented that He ever made man at the flood. And they take that literally, and they say God changed His mind. He had this project with man. Man sinned, and God said, scratching His head as it were, I wish it never made him. They take that literally. 1 Samuel 15, 29 states, God is not a man that he should repent. Repentance, that is really changing your mind, is something that belongs to human beings. And if you're infinitely wise and sovereign and unchangeable, if you are, in short, I am that I am, then you know that he doesn't fall back on a plan B. Crucial knowledge about God for office bearers and for the people of God. And we need this sort of a buttress when we are pressurized to conform to the changing views of ungodly society and an increasingly confused and wondering and doubting church. I went to a funeral. There was a woman minister there. You know, she actually did a fairly decent job. There's a fairly orthodox conservative church, and now they've got women deacons. Maybe they're right. 1 Timothy 2 verse 12, I suffer not a woman to teach, can't be ministers, nor to usurp authority, and there's no such thing as a church office without authority, over the men, but to be in silence. They cannot be ministers, elders, or deacons. 
just as actually all children and most men will never serve in those offices either. Christ is the head of the church. He says these things. Our society tells us that it is a form of hatred of women for the husband to call himself the head of his wife and lead the family in a loving, faithful, sacrificial way. The Church of England, part of the, near the part of the world where I come from, has now decided that they can bless, and therefore God in heaven blesses homosexual marriages. And this is increasing in our day. Other churches, more and more openness to it. Although Scripture says in Romans 1 that this is an unnatural and evil lust and vice homosexuality. You can't marry. The act and the inclination is evil. Leviticus calls it an abomination. Now our children are tempted, and maybe some adults too, to believe the incredibly stupid lie that there are scores of genders. The good news is, of our text, God says, I am that I am. There is truth. He is the true and living God. His Word stands forever in heaven. We have youth culture and silly fads infiltrating the church world. Tim Keller a big name in these circles, proclaims it as wisdom accepted by many that in order to have a successful church, whatever successful means, a successful church in a city, or if you're working with sophisticated people, you need to adopt the music and the art of the church to the city if ever you're going to win them to the gospel. And you say to yourself, is this, is this what we've come to? What does the Word of God say? What about the regulative principle which teaches that God Himself teaches us how He wills us to serve Him? I am that I am. It's not just the revelation of the Ten Commandments, crucial that they are. That was Mount Sinai. Here's another scene at Mount Sinai. I am that I am. That sort of a God, He, the real one, determines how he's to be served, and he sovereignly saves whom he wills by his Word and Spirit according to his eternal purpose, and he doesn't need the fads or gimmicks of foolish leaders of the church. And as Antichrist draws nearer, and so Christ draws nearer, as Antichrist's worldwide kingdom is coming, we recall the truth that there's a great falling away. You see that. People are compromising already. They're conforming themselves to the ungodly world when the Spirit says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind through the Scriptures, including this word, I am that I am. And what if, what if we and our children 
get the worldwide united propaganda worse than before, trying to deceive us, and if it is allied to persecution, which is really, really tough and makes us sweat and weep, we need to be sure that we are grounded. And so, concluding exhortation, we have a God, the same God as Moses, and we go back in our Christian life and in our work as office bearers to the foundations, to the basics. I am that I am who shatters all unbelieving systems and feeble men. And we believe in Jesus Christ, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is the I am that I am, clothed in a real, complete human nature and seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And it was precisely this one, and he alone could do it, who died on the cross for our sins. As God, He imputes, as it were, the sins of the church to Himself. And then He bears them, suffering for them, and saving us from guilt and damnation. He sends the Spirit. He justifies us. He declares us righteous with the righteousness of God. He sanctifies us by the indwelling Spirit who is also, I am that I am. And He will glorify us so that we will be one in Christ even as Christ is in the Father. And this one, beloved, is the one who is our rock, our stronghold, our defense. We run into Him in all of our troubles. And we find, lo and behold, that we're safe and secure. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we pray that Thou would empower us by Thy Word, which is living, which is spirit, and which is true, and that we and our children may love Thee, may keep the covenant, and that we may be able to stand in an evil day and even rejoice as those who are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Amen.